Well, hey, thanks Bronte and Adelaide for bringing us our Bible reading. Great job. And hello to everyone out there. Look at this. Here we are, Jonah 4. I'm so excited. We've made it. Now, if you're like, what is this guy on about? For the last month, we've been studying through this brilliant little book of Jonah together. So if you missed the past three weeks, I really recommend you jump on Spotify or YouTube and check them out because this week will only make limited sense to you without the context of the past three weeks. Now, if you remember way back to week one, you'll remember that this chapter, chapter four, is the one which is simply left out of most children's stories about Jonah. Maybe authors believe it's not appropriate for children or something, but this is the best bit. I mean, it's all been awesome, but this is the climax of the whole story. So once again, I invite you to grab your Bibles and we'll get into this overlooked chapter, Jonah 4. So last week in chapter 3, Jonah finally went to this great city of Nineveh. Well, God pretty much had to drag him there kicking and screaming, but the point is he finally made it. Jonah goes into Nineveh one day, gives a five-word sermon in Hebrew, eight in English, And the entire city repent and turn to God. Even the cows do. Could you imagine? A whole city comes to faith in God because of your preaching? I mean, really, there are just no words to describe how happy and amazed you would be. I'm telling you, I'll be happy if one person gets one thing out of my preaching, let alone the repentance of an entire city. So let's find out. What does Jonah think? Jonah chapter 4. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Oh no, Jonah. He prayed to the Lord. Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, oh Lord... Take away my life, for it would be better for me to die than to live. Oh, no. This is not an awesome prayer to pray. Well, from that, I guess it's safe to say Jonah is not so stoked on the success of his own preaching. He's so angry, he loses it right here. You can almost see the steam coming out of his ears. Well, at least he's cleared a few things up for us. We've been pondering the whole way through this story. Why is Jonah so opposed to bringing God's word to the Assyrian Ninevites? It turns out it's not because he was scared or afraid he'd get impaled or skinned alive, as we investigated last week. He just comes right out and says it. God, I know you're gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, loving and relent from sending calamity. Obviously implying that he hates these dirty, rotten Assyrians so much, he definitely doesn't want any chance for them to find any of these things from God. In fact, he'd rather die than live with the Assyrians who have found God's grace. But this right here is also another one of those times where the author just expects us to get what's going on. Because Jonah is obviously acting terribly right here, 
But he's also being a bit of a smart aleck because he's actually taking God's own words and throwing them straight back in God's face. Because when he says, you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity, he's actually quoting Exodus 34.6. Now, this verse is like the John 3.16, one of, if not, the most famous verse in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. It's actually one of the most requoted verses in the entire Bible, requoted over 25 times, at least in part, by other authors as the story plays out. It's requoted so many times because this verse is just so significant. It's actually the first words we get in the Bible directly describing the character of God. And who do we get it from? The Lord himself, Yahweh, as he speaks directly to Moses up on Mount Sinai. So just to fill in the context here, God had just delivered the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. They're traveling through the desert and they've come to Mount Sinai where they will spend the next year camped at the base of the mountain. Moses has just informed the people that God has chosen them as his own people and wishes to make a covenant with them. Now the people are like, yes, sweet, sign us up. And the covenant is made between Yahweh and his people. So Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God and he receives the Ten Commandments, the first ten and most famous of the 613 instructions God will give to Moses up at Mount Sinai. So Moses is going up the mountain and he's up there for 40 days and the people are like, where's Moses gone? I don't know. He must be dead. I don't, who knows if he's coming back? I know, let's make a golden calf and worship there. That, yeah, that's a great idea. So by doing this, the people have just broken the first two of the Ten Commandments Moses has just received from God. So this is like a bride or a groom cheating on their new spouse at the wedding reception. Anyway, understandably, God is ticked off at the people for this and he threatens to send calamity destroy them all, and just start again with Moses. But no, Moses intercedes, and God relents. He doesn't destroy them. Why? Well, he's Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. Okay, so now that we've got that story in mind, let's take that back to the story of Jonah. Of what people group does Jonah belong to? Hmm. He's an Israelite, one of God's own people. This is so great. He's criticizing God for being this way towards the Assyrians. Yet if God wasn't this way and didn't have these character traits, Jonah and the nation of people he is a part of wouldn't even exist. They all would have been destroyed back at Mount Sinai. But it gets even better. Where has Jonah just come from the stomach of a fish if God hadn't shown compassion and relented from sending calamity on him dude Jonah you'd be nothing but shark poo right now okay so what does God do with this angry displeased man Jonah 
How does God react? Well, because he's gracious, compassionate, slow to anger and loving, God doesn't just leave it there. He pursues Jonah. Verse 4. But Yahweh replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah just totally ignores God and this question, and not for the first time in the story. And Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what happened to the city. So Jonah's obviously planning on being there for a while, building a shelter, Bear Grylls style, I'm imagining. Now, what for sure do we know Jonah is hoping to see? The destruction of the city. He hates these guys, remember? He'd rather die than live in a world where these Assyrians find God's grace. So somehow, Jonah is hoping maybe the Ninevites will repent from their repentance and God will change his mind and bring about their destruction after the 40 days is up. And there is no way Jonah wants to miss out on that. What's going to happen next? Verse 6. Then Yahweh provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. So clearly Jonah is not so awesome at building shelters and sun cream hasn't been invented yet. And Jonah was very happy about this vine. Finally, Jonah is happy about something. But at dawn the next day, God provided a little worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, Oh, it would be better for me to die than to live. Right. So clearly Jonah has totally lost it here. He's crazy. And we really get the comic book feel of the story coming through here. Grace shown to the Ninevites. Oh, I'm so angry. I want to die. Shady plant. Oh, I'm very happy. Worm and hot wind. Oh, I want to die again. It's ridiculous. He's ridiculous. How's God going to approach this crazy man? Verse 9. Jonah, do you have any right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. Wow, God, I don't know if you can reason with Jonah. He's a crazy man. There's no hope for him. Maybe you should just leave him to his own demise. But no. God's going to try and get through to Jonah a third time. Why? Because he's Yahweh, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, loving and relents from sending calamity. Verse 10. But the Lord said, Jonah, you have been concerned about this vine. Though you did not tend to it and you did not make it grow. It sprung up overnight and it died overnight. So you clearly can't have any sentimental attachment to it, Jonah. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. And many cattle as well. No way. Yahweh jumps on board with the cow gag from chapter 3. That's so great. But God continues with his question. Shouldn't I be concerned about that great city, Jonah, where there's 120,000 people made in my image? And many cows, 
This is so awesome. Can you see what God's done here? At first, God questions Jonah's motives for his anger, that God had shown grace to his enemies. But that didn't work. Jonah just ignores his question altogether and goes off to poorly build a shelter. So God brings this little plant into Jonah's life. And for the first time in this entire story, Jonah is happy about something. And for the first time in this entire story, Jonah is actually thinking of something other than himself, albeit something that brings direct comfort to himself. But God can acknowledge this and then use this tiny soft spot in Jonah's otherwise stone-cold heart to try and get his message through to Jonah. Jonah, after one day of knowing this little plant, your love for it was so great, you're now willing to die? Shouldn't I be entitled to have the same or maybe even stronger feelings of compassion towards an entire city of people made in my image and their cows? I mean, how clever is that? God, he's absolutely brilliant, isn't he? Okay, so surely Jonah can't just ignore this question. He better come up with a really good response this time. Let's get back to the passage and see how Jonah responds. Micah, the word of the Lord that came to... Wait, hang on. That's the next book of the Bible. Where's the rest of Jonah? I want to find out how Jonah responds to God's question. What does he say? How does he respond? Oh, come on. This is as bad as that kid's story we read way back in week one of our series. The ending of the story has just been cut off. Hmm. Ah. Do you get it? The author just leaves the story hanging there because he's not the slightest bit interested in Jonah's response. Why? Well, what's the story of Jonah really all about? It's certainly not about a fish. It's not really about God and Nineveh. It's not really even about God and Jonah. This story, it's about God and his own people. It's about God and you. It's about God and me. You see, Throughout this whole story, the author in his brilliance has had us laughing at and uncovering the deep flaws in Jonah's character. Not to simply put down and make fun of Jonah, but to turn that spotlight and to highlight our deep flaws and deeply convict us of our need to get our thoughts and hearts right before God. The author is challenging us how would we respond? So what's Jonah 4 all, all about? That there's no room in God's kingdom for religious superiority and hierarchy. That this God, Yahweh, loves our enemies just as much as he loves us. And that perhaps we should do the same and show love to them as well. And of course, this leads us to one man, God's own son, Jesus who comes along and says exactly that. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5. 
And that is that wonderful saying which tragically has become cliche in some Christian circles says, the ground is level in front of the cross. Those murderous Assyrians are just as entitled to God's love and grace as you, Jonah. You see, Jonah thinks the Assyrians are the bad guys, that they are the worst, most horrible people on earth. And sure, impaling and skinning people alive isn't cool, but they get a mere five words from Jonah and they turn to God immediately. Their hearts are so open to accept and acknowledge that they are messed up and need God's love and forgiveness in their lives. It's Jonah who is the real bad guy of this story. He thinks just because he's a good religious person and because he's part of God's covenant people that he's superior to the Assyrians, that he's sweet with God. But as we read through this story, we can see that without a profound, heartfelt realisation of his own flaws and need for forgiveness, he's just fumbling in the dark. It turns out our kid's Bible was wrong. Just stop doing bad things is not going to cut it. Jonah needs to come to the realisation that he is just as messed up as his enemies, that he is in desperate need of God's forgiveness and grace. And it's only once he gets there, he can then start to show God's love towards his enemies. Instead of the hate bred through his prejudice and self-formed superiority. Now, that's an easy thing to say, we believe, isn't it? That we love our enemies. But as the story of Jonah has already challenged us, it's not about what we say we believe. It's about how we show we believe. But boy, what a challenge especially when we have someone in our life, an enemy, who may have caused us so much pain. So much pain, it may feel like we've just been skinned alive. That bully at school or uni, that horrible boss or colleague at work, that person who spreads lies about you, that former friend or partner who just makes your life hell. You see, this is the scandalous side to God's grace, when God's grace is also shown to our enemies, to people that we hate or just cannot stand to be around. But we can see from the story of Jonah, it's actually God who intentionally brings Jonah into direct contact with his enemy. God takes Jonah to Nineveh in order to give Jonah an opportunity to grow, to be challenged, and to deconstruct his hatred for his enemy. What would it look like for us if we saw our enemies no longer as an obstacle, but now as an opportunity to grow, as we look to now show God's love and grace rather than just receive it? So to try and tie all this together, I want to finish our series through Jonah the same way in which we started it, with a story. 
Now, I've totally just ripped this story out of Tim Mackey's teachings on Jonah. I'm definitely not brilliant enough to find this one myself, but I just love it. It sends shivers down my spine every time I hear it, and hopefully you will find it helpful too. It's a story about a man named Gordon Wilson. Some of you might have heard of him. Gordon was an Irishman. He died 25 years ago now, in 1995. Gordon, his wife Joan, and his family lived in the small town of Enniskillen in Northern Ireland. He was a draper. Need new curtains for your windows in Enniskillen? Gordon's your man. Now, if you're my age or older, think back to the mid to late 1980s. I can just, imagine, I can just remember as a kid, seeing Ireland come up on the news a fair bit. What's going on in Northern Ireland at this time? Yeah, so Gordon and his family are living amongst the violent conflict between the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, and the British as Ireland fights to gain their independence from Britain. Now, Gordon was a follower of Jesus. He was a Christian. However, Gordon was not a supporter of the IRA and didn't approve of their violent tactics to forward their agenda. Okay, so it's now Remembrance Day, November 1987. So in the town square, the people of Enniskillen have planned to hold a service to remember the servicemen and women who had served and lost their lives in wars past, just like our Remembrance Day. But what Gordon and his family, and all of the other people at the service didn't know, was that prior to the event, the IRA had planted bombs in the buildings all around the town square. And just before the service was due to start, the IRA detonated the bombs. So the town square is now a scene of horror, as many people are already injured or killed, but also the detonation of the bombs causes some of the buildings around the square to collapse in, falling onto and trapping many of the people who are gathered. Gordon and his daughter Marie are two of those who are trapped underneath the rubble. But both are pretty badly injured. They're, they're actually pretty close to each other, so they can still talk to one another, but have to wait until the rescue workers can get to them and free them. So Gordon and his daughter are finally freed and rushed off to hospital. However, sadly, Marie, Gordon's daughter, is not able to be saved. Now, of course, news of this bombing just hit the headlines across the world, and the BBC sent reporters to go and get the story and interview some of the eyewitnesses and victims of the bombings. Gordon Wilson was one of those that were interviewed. But what he said shocked the world. William Urry, who recounted the story, puts it like this. No one who heard Gordon Wilson will ever forget what he said in that interview. His grace towered over the miserable justification of the bombers. Speaking from his hospital bed, Gordon describes his last conversation with his daughter. Quote, 
She held my hand tightly. She gripped me as hard as she could. She said, Daddy, I love you very much. Those were her last exact words to me, and those were the last words I ever heard her say. But to the astonishment of listeners, Gordon then went on to add, But I will bear no ill will. I will bear no grudge. Bitter talk is not going to bring her back to life. I will pray tonight and every night for the men who did this, that God will forgive them. No words in more than 25 years of violence in Northern Ireland had such a powerful emotional impact. But then the story gets even more amazing. A year later, to commemorate the Enniskillen bombing, Gordon held a public event where he invited the media and representatives from the IRA to come and meet with him, where through his faith in Jesus, he announced that he had forgiven his daughter's murderers. And he begged the IRA to stop the violence and these tactics to forward their agenda. Now, after these events, Gordon became so well known and respected When Ireland finally gained their independence, he became a senator and a towering figure within Ireland because of his commitment to Jesus to forgive and show love towards his enemies. A later president of the Irish Republic, Mary McAllis, talked about Gordon like this. Gordon's words, they shamed us all and caught us off guard. They sounded so different from what we expected and what we had all become so used to. They brought a sense of stillness with them and they carried a sense of the transcendent into a place that had become so ugly we could hardly bear to watch. But Gordon had his detractors and unbelievably even received bags of hate mail. How dare you forgive, people demanded. What kind of father are you who can forgive your daughter's killers? It was as if Gordon had spoken those words of forgiveness for the first time in human history. As if Christ had never uttered the words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. One outspoken critic who was a Christian said to me about Gordon Wilson, Surely the poor man must have been in shock as if offering love and forgiveness is a sign of mental weakness instead of spiritual strength. Wow, Gordon Wilson, what an amazingly godly man. He totally gets what Jonah 4 is all about. So how are we going with our enemies? Who do we tend to resonate more with? Gordon or Jonah? Maybe a change in direction is required. So there you go, guys. That's what this amazing and brilliant book of Jonah is really all about. It's no kid's story, hey. It's a story packed full of truths and challenges for us. And I hope and pray that you have been as challenged and convicted as I have been as we've studied through this brilliant little story together. So just on a personal note, 
Thanks for the opportunity to share with you guys what God had placed on my heart. And a huge thank you for all your prayers and messages of support. They've all been greatly appreciated. So thanks again, guys, and I'll catch you all again soon. Let's close in prayer. Loving God, we thank you again for this amazing little story of Jonah. Thank you for the truths and challenges which are revealed for us through this story. We pray that as we move forward from here, we can now see our enemies in a new light as an opportunity to not only grow, but to show your love and grace to the world. Amen.